Welcome to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg with Altus Performance, and this week, Cam has a really good conversation with one of our favorite players on the PGA Tour, Kevin Chapel. Kevin is a PGA Tour winner. He's represented the U.S. and the Presence Cup, and before that was a college standout at UCLA where he was three-time All-American and won the national championship on the team and as an individual. And he's the very first guest that we've had that has broken 60 in a PGA Tour event. Last September, he shot 59 at Greenbrier, and Cam does a really good job digging into that experience with him in this conversation, and partly because his coach, Mark Blackburn, is a good friend to Altus, Kevin is one of the few non-Altus players that I have starred on my PGA Tour app and follow closely. He's one of the best personalities on tour, so he's really easy to cheer for. And as you'll learn in this conversation, he's developed a bunch of really impressive ways to separate himself, edge earners, and he shares them generously with Cam in this conversation. And some of them are unique that we just haven't heard from other guests. So I encourage you to just pay really close attention to Kevin's answers as they reveal a lot about how he approaches his game and continue to get better and improve and competing. So first, a quick word from our partners, Total Golf Trainer, and then on to episode 59 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Kevin Chapel and Cameron McCormick. The Total Golf Trainer line of products are designed to provide instant feedback for golfers of all skill levels to help solve a wide variety of swing issues. And we haven't really seen an issue that it can't solve from path issues to improving club face control and even body mechanics. Pretty much any issue that you have, the Total Golf Trainer can help. The 3.0 kit is the first multi-tool training aid that is completely custom to your golf swing with the easy-to-use adjustable training rods that can be attached to your club or your body, and you can increase or decrease the difficulty level so anyone from juniors to beginners to pros will all benefit. We've enjoyed getting creative to find all the different ways that we can use the Total Golf Trainer, and they've got some great videos on their website that show it in use. So to learn more and watch those videos on how to improve your game with the Total Golf Trainer, visit TotalGolfTrainer.com or find them on social media at Total Golf Trainer. But now on to our episode. Chap, you're a great follow on Instagram. For those that are out there that are not following you, I suggest you immediately head over there and click the follow button. And that's where my first question comes from. Of all the costumes you've worn in your Instagram posts, which are you likely to wear again and why? Well, I do have quite the costume box. We're on costume box number two now. Mm -hmm. I got rid of my original costume box when I was getting ready to have kids. My wife was nesting and she's like, what do you want to do with this? And I, I kind of gave her what I thought the right answer was. <laughs> and, I, that, and that That's was to... Uh, that was to toss it. Well, fast forward a few years. I mean, my kids love it when I dress up. And so now I'm regretting getting rid of some of that stuff. But I have a dinosaur onesie that is shorts and it's kind of like a bro tank. And it's got a tail <laughs> and uh, and that that's my, kind of my go-to. It's comfortable. You can wear it to get coffee. You can wear it to go to the grocery store. And, uh, you know, so that's part of the weekly uh, wardrobe when I'm home. Did I miss that one? Has that been on Instagram at all? The, yeah, there's one. I put a video up of me hitting in a simulator in it and a glass of wine next to me. I mean, that's that's uh, that's pretty much my weekly routine. Love it. Well, my personal favorite has to be the gingerbread man from Halloween in 2019. So I can't <laughs> wait for that one to make a reappearance. <laughs> I think the crotch on that one got ripped out, but uh, so <laughs> I think it had to get retired. But I still have the head that I wear around occasionally. <laughs> that may be an X-rated story that we can't get into for the purpose of this podcast, but maybe you can tell me that in person. Anyway... On to why we're here. The goal of the podcast is have conversations with amazing people, people that have done and continue to do the difficult things to grow, 
whether they're athletes, as you are, entrepreneurs, artists, or anything else, to understand how they became great in knowing that the wisdom that comes from talking about your journey passed along through this podcast has positive effect on our listeners because we hear that time and time again. So a common place we like to start is understanding your origin story. So as that starting point, we'd love to get an idea of your early involvement in golf. So I uh, grew up in central California, Fresno, and uh, my dad was an avid golfer. You know, he, he tells the story that he joined a country club as he started having kids. And that was you know, kind of his vision for the family was to be involved in golf and because that was his passion. And, uh, when I was, let's see, my, when my mom was 40 years old, she went back to school to get her master's in hospital management. And so that made me six, seven years old and my older brother and dad would go play golf. And so my choices were stay at home and watch mom study or <laughs> go to the golf course. And so it was an easy decision. And uh, so, you know, all the guys would go to the golf course and we'd play golf and, you know, it, it would involve, you know, maybe nine holes in the morning and uh, a milkshake and, you know, and just hanging out with the guys. And uh, the more I did that, the more I enjoyed it. But I played all sports. And uh, but I've always been a realist. I've always what is the end goal here? Where are you going with this? And and uh, as I got better, I would eliminate other sports uh, better at golf. I'd eliminate other sports so I could keep my focus there and got to junior high and saw that golf and baseball in high, high school were at the same season. Mm -hmm. And so I, I knew that I didn't hit for power. I wasn't fast and I wasn't left-handed. So my future in baseball was probably going to be limited. So um, <laughs> golf immediately became my focus because my parents' other rule was you either play a sport or you get a job. And uh, you know, I, I like to say I've never really had a job. Beautiful. Go back to when you said, I've always been a realist. Did that come out of conversations with your parents? Is that something you feel you just found your way into? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I'm a big evidence guy, right? So mm -hmm. that, that's kind of how I, my career evolved, even getting back to junior golf. It's like I never wanted to sign up for national junior events until I was winning all the local ones. So, you know, I started out playing local junior events. What age was that? And, you know, maybe eight years old, mm -hmm. eight, eight to 10. And, and I'm playing local junior events. And until I could win those, I didn't want to play in the state level. And then once I started winning the local ones and playing the state level, and once I started competing on the state level, it's like, okay, maybe I'm ready to play some national level stuff. And that didn't happen until I was 15, 16 years old when I'm getting recruited you know, to, to go to colleges. Fortunately, there were some colleges in California that had coaches that grew up in similar systems that, that I was playing in. Mm -hmm. And so they, were, they knew they could find, you know, let's call it a hit, the hidden gems right. within you know, those junior golf tours. And so that's where I was. When I went to UCLA, I had played less than a half dozen you know, national junior events. You're kidding me. No, and... and it wasn't from a lack of ability, but it was just more, Hey, I'm, this is where I'm going to make my footprint kind of on the state level. Sure. And if there's an AJGA in Northern California or Southern California that I can get to in a short drive, you know, let's cut down costs and let's, and let's play and see how, we, how we do. And, and then really, you know, continue to develop yourself on that state level. You must've been exemplary in some matter though, because didn't you represent the USA and the Toyota cup over in Japan as a junior? I did. And, um, I guess at that time there was a junior junior golf rankings and things like that that mm -hmm. were coming out and you're getting points even only playing on the state level. I think if we're going to be completely honest, I think there may have been some politics there and maybe my college coach could have been on a committee that <laughs> put, put me on that team. But um, well, that's always you know, in play, mate. <laughs> yeah, so obviously a great honor, and uh, you know that was my first experience playing international golf and, and even traveling. You know overseas to play golf and that was you know the summer before i went to ucla so that was eye-opening and 
and really kind of got me ready for the team atmosphere. Fact check me here, and maybe the golf course is different these days, but I have a friend who coaches for Golf Canada who took a team across there to compete in that same event. And he says, this is two years ago, perhaps now, he says that the course you play at is 45 minutes away from where you warm up and you warm up with as little as 15 shots. Is that factual? That sounds right. I remember leaving Japan and thinking, man, what a weird experience that was. Because yeah. even in our practice round, you play a practice round, play nine holes, and you go and you have a lunch, you have a steam, you get in the you know you get in the, the hot tub, and then you have like a second tea time to go play the back nine. <laughs> so it's a six hour day, and it's not just golf, you know. And and so I remember, you know, thinking, man, what a you know what a production golf is in in, in Japan. Japan. Right on, right on. Growing up in Fresno, who were the role models? Who were the folks, the players that you looked up to that you were, so to speak, chasing after? So I was fortunate that Mike Springer, who's a few-time tour winner, was my neighbor growing up. And so I, I was able to watch Mike. Now, what I recall was kind of the back end of his his PJ Tour career. So I didn't experience a lot of the wins with him or, or, or watch him you know, win a lot, but, you know, he had a successful career and I was watching him do it. So, you know, when I would go to the golf course, I was watching him practice. I was watching him work on his game, Nick Watney, whatever year I was in high school, he was in college. And so, you know, I was looked up to Nick. He was a, you know, number one college player in the country and, you know, just a stand up guy. And so I got to really learn from him. You know, I fortunate, I was fortunate to, you know, get in some gambling games with Nick, mm -hmm. you know, at, at a young age and, and see what I needed to do. And that kind of really pushed me to want to get better and allow me to see what I needed to do to get to the next level. Is there a gambling game? Is there a day that you went out with Nick where you were like, oh, yeah, I can do this. I, I've, I've got this at the next level, even though that next level was only, like you said, he was your equivalent grade in college. Nothing that comes to mind, but mm -hmm. I remember, you know, I, I was my golf coach in high school was uh, I would be in his class as like his teacher's assistant. And so he would let me leave and go play in these gambling games during school. And so I'd go play with Nick. And, you know, I remember shooting four or five under par and thinking, man, I'm doing great. And then you add it up in the end and Nick shot seven. And you're like, <laughs> man, how did he do that? I thought I, thought I was competing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it, I guess it would just it showed you or showed me that on where we're playing, maybe not the most difficult golf courses, you, you can't stop. You got to keep going mm -hmm. and, uh, you, you know, never settle for, you know, when you're four under par, you got to get to six. Right. Um, yeah. Not that we could give your, your teacher a shout out other than to probably get them in trouble. So we'll leave that, that alone, but certainly <laughs> appreciative of the people that along the way have kind of made the path easier rather than more difficult. So yeah, shout out to your teacher there. For sure. Let's move to the college years. Now, I've been to UCLA. In fact, I was there on a study tour with the Australian National Cricket Coaches a few years back where we went to both UCLA and Stanford on the same trip in an effort to see what was, what was in the water, right? Given that um, both of those schools have each won over 110, 115 national championships, whatever the latest count is. But when you were deciding to go to college, how did you kind of vet the uh, the colleges and ultimately land on UCLA as your choice? So, like I said, I you know I had owned, my footprint didn't extend much outside the state of California mm -hmm. playing wise, and so I was limited by the schools that recruited me. I got recruited by UCLA, I got recruited by USC, and I got recruited by Pepperdine. You know, each school had their pros and cons. I wanted the big school atmosphere. So immediately, you know, I wanted immediately Pepperdine got eliminated. I wanted to go to big basketball games. I wanted to go to big football games. So basically for me, it came down to two schools, USC and, and UCLA. And uh, my 
parents totally let me choose, you know, once we got the scholarship portions figured out and, mm-hmm. and knowing that it would be covered and it was like, it became my decision, which is I'm grateful for. Um, but I think, you know, they were probably leaning towards USC for me to go to school if I, if I were to put words in their mouth. So naturally I went to UCLA. <laughs> sure. Uh, th- th- and at the time they had, they had had, um, back to back top three finishes at NCAAs. They had a young coach that was doing it you know, kind of a different way or, or kind of, he had edge to him. That was Derek Freeman. No, that was Odie Vincent. Oh, Odie. Okay. Sorry. And, uh, and so, you know, they, they had some edge to them. They, I don't know if you recall, but they were on the cover of golf magazine. Yeah. Tell the story. Holding, yeah. So that would have been, as I was getting recruited, they go on the cover of golf magazine. They're all holding a bucket of golf balls in front of their, their private parts. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yeah, I want to be a part of this. This is fun. <laughs> and, uh, that resonated and, with you. You wanted to be part of that, right? Well, I just like the way they did it differently, right? I've never done it any other way but that. Yep. And uh, and so, yeah, definitely resonated with me. And, uh, you know, and all those guys that were having success back-to-back years, they were going to be gone by the time I got there. So there was going to be an immediate opportunity to play. And so when I got to school, when I, when I committed, you know, I was probably one of the few kids. Uh, there was five of us in the recruiting class. I was probably the only kid that wasn't a top-ranked junior. But I was, I guess arrogant enough to think I could do it and, mm-hmm. and I was going to do it and uh, went to school and I probably played let's call it 50% of the, the, the events my my freshman year and contributed most of those events and then the next year I, I played you know called 80% and you know maybe one once or twice and then my junior year I was a uh, you know all-american and you know one of really tried or started to develop myself as you know, a guy to beat and, you know, having a presence on the national level and being towards the top of the collegiate ranks. And then my senior year, I was the player of the year and was fortunate to win NCAAs and as an individual and as a team. So, you know, that for me, that was, it kind of has mirrored, it mirrored my junior career as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was always evidence to keep pushing forward, evidence that I was getting better, evidence that, hey, you got to reset your goals and, and, and set the bar higher for yourself. Yeah, that evidence piece is a beautiful insight. Let's go back and I want to understand a phase of development that seemed like it was really, really important. Your sophomore year scoring average was 73.4. Mm-hmm. Your junior year scoring average was 71.5. I'm wondering what happened that summer and therefore bled into your junior year to allow for that improvement. So I think I, so. I, as a junior golfer, I, I had... I lived near the golf course. Uh, my instructor owned a driving range and part three course. So I was able to practice a lot. I was a really a big practicer. And I think, you know, about halfway through my experience at UCLA, I was able, I, I took a step back and I looked at the guys that had gone to UCLA. So at that time, the guys on tour would have been your Corey Pavins, your Brant Jobes, your Scott McCarrens, Duffy Waldorf. So they were, they're all in the back end of their careers at that time but had all had successful professional careers. And you looked at them and, you know, besides the, the wins and the financial side of, of what they'd done in their careers, none of them had games that you would want to copy. You know, they all did it their own way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, what can I take from what these guys have done? And so I started thinking about it. And at UCLA, we didn't have the best practice facilities. You know, we didn't have a grass range you could hit balls on. And, and so for being a, a guy that grew up being a ball hitter, I needed to learn how to play the game. I knew how to practice. I, I knew how to do that. I needed to learn how to play the game. And so I completely turned my focus to, Hey, 
if I can embrace the, the fact that we don't have the best facilities and just learn to get the ball in the hole faster, mm-hmm. man, I'm going to be a lot better off. And I think that's the best thing that ever happened to me is I embraced the 630 practices without hitting range balls and you had to go qualify and shoot the lowest score you could when you didn't feel good, you didn't warm up, you didn't know what you were going to hit on the first tee. You just had to figure it out. And you know, I think that's why UCLA has, has produced a lot of um, good players because they can teach you how to play. They can't provide an opportunity for you to necessarily practice and and work on the positions and, and those things that are important but they can teach you how to get the ball in the hole. Yeah, there's some amazing insight in there, and many things kind of come to mind. The first of which is, have you read a book by Ryan Holiday called The Obstacle is the Way? Yeah, I have. Yeah, well, he talks about turning the obstacle upside down, and that seems like that's exactly what you did. You recognized that you couldn't be the player that developed the way you developed back home in Fresno, and you looked at that rather than as a – a negative, you turn that into a positive and you became the player who uh, was shooting two strokes uh, better than your previous year. And, and in, in addition, what I want to ask you is that reflective process when you said, I took a step back, it, was that part of your search for evidence that you just developed as a, as a young kid and you've, you've, you still hold as a strength, almost a superpower to this date? Totally. And, you know, often I need to call timeouts in life or in my career and say, okay, where am I? Where do I want to get to? And how am I going to do that instead of playing? So I remember about that time in college, it may have been a year later going into my senior year, but I decided I wanted to document how I was getting better. Mm-hmm. And so I did a deal where I did 365 days of better. And so I kept a journal and each day I would write down how I got better that day. And so some days, it was all how I skewed it. So some days it was, I drank 12 beers. I've never done that before. That made, that made me better. But but it was all about, I wrote down something positive every day. Mm-hmm. And some days it was, I made 300 four-footers in a row, or whatever it was. Right. And by the, at the end of that year, I had 365 days of how I got better. And just being able to say that each day, I, I had evidence on mm-hmm. why I was improving and how I was improving. And I can refer to it. Yeah. So that that was a huge part for me as well. Do you still do that? I don't. I really should. As yeah. I was saying that, I'm like, man, that would at this point in my career, that would be a brilliant thing to do. Is that something that a coach guided you to? Was that OD? Was that any any one other player on on the team, or is that something you came up with? Because that's just gold. I, I think it's something I came up with. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a, we were fortunate to have a lot of those guys that were on tour at time uh, at that time to come back and talk to us. And it could have been, you know, a nugget from Tom Pernice and a nugget from Corey. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to put my own take on it and this is how I'm going to do it. Genius. Um, And, you know, at that time I was kind of turning into the leader on the team and, and, and really trying to embrace leading by example and knowing that, Hey, ultimate goal here is to win a national championship. The best way for, for us to do that is me to be, be my best. So here's how I'm going to do it. One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. Let me give you an opportunity right now. You've just demonstrated uh, one of those traits of leaders. 
is there one other thing or maybe a couple of other things that come to mind if you were speaking to an audience of college golfers that were juniors and seniors on their team and you were describing to them here are the traits of leadership as I experienced them what would they be what did you demonstrate one being 365 days of better lead by example yep. so I think you have to have balance right so lead by example but you so work ethic but you also have to have fun so mm-hmm. like something that we would do is Thursday night was college night at the bars and so I would make we would all go together. We'd go to the lit driving range and go hit golf balls. And then we'd go have a beer afterwards. And it's like, Hey, we, we did our part. We did our, continued to do our work after we, we went to practice that day and did our workouts and everything. We went and got better. Now let's go enjoy it and let it, let's soak it in. So there's like that, that team building that, mm-hmm. that you're including guys that maybe you wouldn't always hang out with in a social environment. They're your teammates. Yes. But you know, at UCLA, we had guys from all different demographics, all different parts of the world. You know, I, w- I went to some of my, closest friends in college were Koreans, you know, that I probably didn't go to high school with any Koreans mm-hmm. and I'm learning about their cultures and we're, you know, going to Koreatown and, and really embracing each other's backgrounds. And so I, you know, I think that's part of it is being inclusive within your team and you really understanding what makes other people sick and know that there's not one way to do it. Yeah. I think I've got another one and, and you demonstrated this pretty much your entire last two years of college, maybe even before that, but leaders rise to the occasion in big moments. And I want you to take us back and set the scene on the 71st hole, the par three national championship. You already mentioned your 2008 player of the year. You already mentioned the national championship. You didn't actually mention that you wanted individually and what you did in the closing couple of holes secured it for the team. Can you take us back there? Yeah. So obviously that's a, it's a weird week the way it used to play out. It's a stroke play event and there's an individual tournament going on as well as the team event going on at the same time. Right. So in playing great, I've had a great senior year. I'm making plans to turn professional, trying to decide when it's going to happen, where it's going to happen, all these things. Right. But now it's done with the national championship my team really has a chance to to win. And again, how can I help my team win? Go win individually. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's my goal. So everything's going to plan. I think we make the turn on the final round and I have maybe a five shot lead. I'm even par in the day and have maybe a five shot lead. And so, and our team's up a few shots. And so I immediately, I, get, I become selfish and it's like, all right, I got to win this golf tournament by seven. Because again, if I can increase my lead, that means I'm helping the team relative to the other teams. And mm-hmm. so maybe get a little sloppy, get ahead of myself, but I'm over par now in the back nine, but my lead's still four shots with two holes to play. Mm-hmm. I'm going to win the golf tournament until I take it back on 17 and hit long par three, Pete Dye golf course. I hit it 40 yards out in the middle of this lake. And I mean, it's way offline and I'm dropping it's a 200, 230 yard hole or whatever it is. And I'm dropping, hitting my third shot from 160 yards. So it tells you how sideways this ball went right and so i drop and Derek freeman who's now the head coach there and that was his first year being the head coach he's walking with me and you can see his face turn white and again i'm <laughs> still probably going to win the golf tournament as an individual but now we got stress on the team side because my score is counting and uh, so i hit a drop at 160 yards hit eight iron and uh, it goes just through the green and uh, we're playing with usc and stanford so it's all pac 12 final or no we're playing with USC and Clemson, and uh, but Stanford has posted the score that we're trying to beat, basically. So I walk up there, and I have this fast chip down the hill for four, and I chip it in. And so make a great bogey, 
real fired up, had gone through a lot personally going into that year. And I can't help but like think of from those experiences of adversity that I had to go through that I was able to pull from those and, and apply it in that situation. And, uh, and so, you know, make par on the last hole and, uh, look at the leaderboard. We win by one shot. Yeah. And so, you know, it was a culmination of, of my four years at UCLA and, you know, obviously couldn't have ended in a better manner. Yeah. Do you recall either that moment or many of the moments of triumph when you've succeeded doing something very difficult, the self-talk, the place that you go to in your mind that allows you to succeed versus when others fall short of pulling off the, the great shot? Yeah, you know, I think in that in that instance, I, I was fortunate that I had had a lot of good that year. And so I wasn't, I didn't react to the negative shot in a way that I would have had I only seen bad that year. Yeah. You know, you become you become jaded when all you when you get kicked in the shin every day. Mm-hmm. You, you, you expect to get kicked in the shin, right? Yep. But when you're doing the kicking, you don't realize that other people can that you can get kicked back. You can take a few punches. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, and so, you know, I think in that instance, I was able to. You know, I was just playing good golf. I didn't realize what bad golf was. Right. And so, oh, I'm just going to go make the lowest score I can on the hole after hitting it in the water. All right, I make four. Here yeah. we go. Let's go to the next hole. Yeah. And so I think I think that would be what I was able to pull from there. It's a great reframing. I'm just going to go make the lowest score possible I can make given this situation, and not get too caught up in the moment, but recognizing that you are in the moment, but what's important now, it's just, it's the next shot, right? So let's jump to Chappie the pro 12 years of pro. And there's so much we could talk about. And I think no matter which events or periods I bring up the lessons from growth or triumph and the lessons from adversity or challenge may provide similar insight and learning. So let's start with a period of time, 2008 to 2010. And it's a period that matters to those athletes out there trying to forge their path in professional sport. And I'm asking this question as if I'm one of the many players that have turned pro out of college that don't make the immediate leap onto the big tour with you know, six to eight starts and or, or straight to Corn Ferry playoffs these days and get their card. What did you learn after turning pro that helped you progressively get better to the point you ultimately got your card for the PGA Tour in 2010? You know, I think for me, it was hard because I had all these accolades and I signed with an agent who was an independent guy, father figure to me, his name's Ralph Cross. And Ralph maybe didn't have the pull of um, an agent that had, you know, worked for IMG at the mm-hmm. time or a Wasserman or whatever the agent, a, big agencies were at the time. So I wasn't getting the starts that someone that had my resume typically would. Mm-hmm. And so I really had to go earn it or take advantage when I did get a start. So immediately that became the question of when, when are you going to play? And, you know, that was never a question for me the previous four years. It was, I was going to play when UCLA was signed up for a golf tournament. Right. Right. And I was going to go to practice when we were told we had practice. Mm -hmm. And so you had 24 hours in a day and you could practice whenever you wanted, you could play whenever you wanted, but you still needed to get all that stuff done. Right. And that was hard, the time management and understanding how to make your own schedule and things like that. So my advice to someone would be play as much as you can. And doesn't matter where or what level, learn to win, learn to shoot the lowest score you can week in and week out. And then good golf translates. It doesn't matter what level it is. Good golf as an amateur is still good golf as a pro. You can still do it. It's the same skill sets. It's the same, you know, same objective. Shoot the lowest score you can. And so I struggled with that starting out because I thought I deserved X, Y, and Z Mm. because of my, my uh, resume and that wasn't coming. And finally, after missing a Q school, I was like, Oh, this is a slap in the face. I got to go earn this. 
And I was fortunate to get a start at Pebble Beach 2009 and finished sixth. Mm -hmm. And that kind of was what got me got me going. The entitlement that you describe, I should get this many starts. Was there a moment, a performance, a, a letter of decline that we're not going to let you in this into this tournament that caused you to go through that process you talked about of reflection and says, I've got to change my attitude towards where I'm at in life in my game? Yeah, so I think it was when it was finally on me. Mm-hmm. You know, I signed up for Q School. At that time, there was a direct route to the PJ Tour. Go to Q School, get your tour card. Get to final stage and get your tour card. And when it was finally on me and I didn't accomplish it, it was like, maybe I didn't deserve all this stuff. Mm. Maybe I didn't, you know, maybe I wasn't worthy of these, these let's call them handouts. Yeah. And okay, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to produce the evidence that shows I am worthy, I am good enough, and I'm ready to go. So you get back to work. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, you, where's my game lacking? Where, where am I not seeing the transfer at this next level? And you get to work and then you wait for the next. Uh, for me, I was fortunate to get another opportunity. So I waited for the next opportunity and I took advantage of it. At, at Pebble. Yeah. Yeah. Then you said waiting for the next level. And the next question I have for you is leveling up in 2011. U.S. Open, the biggest stage, your first major. Do you remember how you dealt with that bigger stage for the entirety of the week? And then furthermore, particularly on Sunday, moving up the leaderboard and ultimately finishing third at your first major championship. Yeah, I remember that being an interesting week. So I qualified for the event. I think I did it in Columbus and, uh, you know, got through and get into the event and you're excited, you know, just to be there at first. And I remember it being a weird week because I teed off. I was like the last tee time on Thursday off the wrong side. So I'm Mm -hmm. finishing on nine and there's no one there. Uh, you know, watching you play golf and you're just like, man, this is what the U S open is. Like, <laughs> this is what this is made up to be. And I think, you know, Rory had shot seven under the first day and I'm like, yeah, it's, it's difficult, but it doesn't feel any different. You know, this is what I've been doing all year. And so I think that that created like a comfort level for me mm-hmm. of like, Oh, this is just another event. And you know, I, I was like, I think my game was trending and, and things were going in the right direction. And once I got momentum snowballing in the right direction, it was like, okay, like, let's just keep this going. And uh, so I, th- I think I shot a few over the first round and then proceeded to play three really good rounds that followed. And it, was, it, it wasn't about the U.S. Open or where I was at or what I was doing. It was just about getting the ball in the hole and the least amount of shots and shooting low score. And then I remember looking up and being like, oh, my gosh, I'm gonna, I got a chance to finish second. <laughs> you know, right? Because at that point, that was what we were playing for. Rory's running away with it, mm-hmm. and uh, I think Jason Day ended up finishing second. He got up and down the last to beat me by a shot, I think. And uh, I was like, "Oh, wow, that's that's how you put together a, a positive week. You just kind of black out for a little while, and you look up, and <laughs> there I am. And you finished third at the U.S. Open. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no big deal, right?" Two thousand seventeen, Valero take me there but before that what's in the water at Valero it was your maybe not first but an early start at a college ride and it was your first big finish you finished second there or uh, T2 yep. in, your, in your rookie year and then ultimately in 2017 you won there is there something about that golf course or that style of golf course that just suits you as a player suits your eyes suits your skill set there has to be something right I think I finished every position between first and fifth there mm-hmm. so um, you know that's pretty unique to have that much success in one place but you know it's a it's a penalizing golf course you always get some weather and you really have to be in a good frame of frame of mind to play well there and 
think guys tend to have a bad attitude about that place because it, it can be so severe. Yeah, and so I agree. Just, just going into it with a good attitude, you're that much further ahead of your peers. And so I think I've embraced that really well there of like, okay, the, half the field doesn't want really want to be here. Or they don't like X, Y, and Z about this place. Let's, let's really embrace those things and make that a positive for you. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a golf course. You can really get some momentum going through hitting fairways and greens, and then it can be a fast finish you know, drivable par four and, and reachable par five to finish. And so you can really put an exclamation point on some rounds as well there. And so, you know, I, I try to take what the course gives me there and, and then take advantage late in the round. But it, that week in 2017, you know, there was a lot of evidence that showed I was ready to do it. You, you look back at 2016, I finished second. I think it was five times that year. And, you know, there were, there were all different types of second place finishes, having a lead and, and faltering late you know, backdoor second place finishes and, you know, everything in between. And so I, I, I was comfortable in that situation and, you know, coming down the stretch, I, I felt like I had control of the golf tournament. No one could get to a number that I could get to mm-hmm. was kind of the attitude I had. I think I won at 12 under and, you know, I remember watching Brooks post at 11, Tony Finau was up there and he had to make Eagle on the last to, to, uh, to get to 12 and he didn't, he made par. So I was the only one that could ever get to 12 under par. Mm-hmm. And it took, you know, even playing the last, I think it was the last four holes. I had birdie looks and that's why I kept telling my caddy, we're the only one that can get there. We're the only one that can get there. All you gotta do is play the last four and one under. And you know, that you, that's the story that you wrote. And, uh, you know, in typical chappy fashion, uh, I wanted the, the drama and waited till the last hole, but, um, I got there and got it done. And it was, you know, for me, it was a nice, it was a big relief to kind of get that monkey off your back and be able to say you're a PGA tour winner. How easy is it generally or specifically when you know you've got it in your hands, maybe one hand, uh, so to speak, on the trophy to keep that frame of mind that the lowest score possible, the golf course is difficult, it's going to kick people in the shins or maybe even kick people a little higher up in their in their privates. Yeah. How, how difficult was it to keep that attitude, that frame of mind in like in present? Yeah, yeah, that is the hardest part, in my opinion. You know, it's a you almost have to look at it as a marathon, right? You're going to run you got, you have to finish the whole distance and you've seen guys make bogeys on the last hole to lose tournaments. And you've seen guys birdie the last three holes to win tournaments. And so, you know, anything can happen until, until you cross that finish line, there's no guarantees. Mm -hmm. It's not always nice to know where you are. I I like knowing what the situation is and what I need to do. Cause I always look at that as, you know, that's your direction. That's your, that's your path that you have to take to, to accomplish the ultimate goal. But that is the hardest part of knowing what you have to do and then going and doing it because <laughs> all of a sudden it seems so easy. But when it seems easy, that's when it becomes really difficult. Right. End of 2017, you get to represent your country in the President's Cup on at Liberty National overlooking New York. I was there. I watched you. It seemed like you were unfazed, enjoying it, having the typical good time that you love to have. Was that like the duck on water? You don't see the legs swimming quite as fast and kicking quite as fast, or was that really the experience that you recall? No, I mean I was that's as nervous as I had been, and, <laughs> and uh, but you know that week as a whole was just an unbelievable experience. You know, you get to be intimate with guys that you aren't typically intimate with, you know, like you, know, you get to know a Jordan Spieth, you get to know a Justin Thomas and what makes them tick. And you get to see kind of the inner workings of them. You know, those guys want the team to win. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they're willing to do whatever it takes. You know, I, one thing I I'll always, I always recall from that week is how Jordan Spieth is the most mature person in every room he's in. 
or at least that week he was. And when he was talking, everyone was listening. And I was like, man, that is just so cool. He's 24 years old at the time. And you got Tiger Woods in the room and Jordan's talking and everyone's listening and taking notes. Hmm. And I was like, man, that's something I can really pull from of, of his insight and um, his demeanor was, was second to none. And, uh, you know, it's always nice. You're going to play well when you know you have the most weapons, right? It's like kind of right. probably we were going to war against internationals and we just had more firepower. So, you know, it was a fun week in that sense because we knew that. We knew they knew that. And all we had to do was just go use our weapons. And so winning's always fun and, and winning how we did made it even more special. Indeed. Can we pull on the thread of adversity and the set of skills, whether that's the people that you surround yourself with, call it your team, your family, the psychological skills that you've spoken about at length already as a performer when you're dealing with injury. You've had a nagging back injury for five years. You went through surgery. It's, it's a big setback. But moreover than focusing on the setback, champions react to challenge with a unique set of skills. And I just want, want to open it up to you to talk about how you're reacting to the challenge and overcoming it to what your coach Mark Blackburn says, become Chappie 2.0. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I was hurt for four or five years and playing through it, whether it was through a lot of manual therapy or, you know, over using Advil, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I was doing whatever it took to, to be able to play and probably didn't help that I was playing well. You know, it made me, think oh i can keep doing this i can keep doing this i can keep doing this well you know 2018 i played at the mayacoba event in mexico putted out in the 72nd hole and by the time we la- my wife and i landed back in phoenix she had to carry me through the airport like i couldn't walk mm-hmm. my symptoms basically had flared up so bad and the way i describe it is basically all the adrenaline came out of my body that was my body saying this is where you really are so i really had to take a look in the mirror of like okay now this is affecting my quality of life my family I can't be myself to my family. Um, I can't take care of my kids. My wife has to take care of me. All right, this has to stop. And so, you know, I, I relied on my team at the time. You know, Dr. Ara is a good friend and, and I'm a client of his and he really helped me find the best surgeon for me. And we went about it and there was a game plan from day one, how we were going to come back. And, you know, I started rehab four days after surgery and then was, I tried to be as diligent with that as I try to be with my golf game. And so that, you know, that became my job. We were rehabbing every day. And then when, once I started getting into golf, it was a ball count, you know, until probably January 1st of 2020, I knew how many balls I hit in every session I had. And until I could hit, so it started with 10 wedges. Mm -hmm. So once I could hit 10 wedges in consecutive days without any discomfort, I increased the ball count. So then I would hit 15 wedges and go back to one day and then 15 wedges consecutive days. And then I would start adding clubs as after I could hit 15 balls, I'd add another club. And, you know, I didn't ever skip a step. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I didn't skip a step in and uh, it was tedious and and difficult, but you demonstrated (laughs) patience. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. It was, I I probably should have done 365 days of better then because (laughs) I, I really was getting better. Just maybe not in the ways that you want to as a competitor. So then, you know, coming back, you know, play the Greenbrier and have some success early on. Well, well, time uh, out, time out. You just can't glean over the Greenbrier just like that. Oh, okay. (laughs) Your first bit back, the second round back, you shoot 59. It's the 11th in tour history and 
Man, there's so much that we, like, you've gone low many an occasion in your career, but not that low. And the question that comes out of that is, how did it feel triumphing in such a way, even though it was just one round of golf, essentially the pinnacle of golf achievement and shooting the second lowest now score in tour history, that flow experience There's so many things that I want to understand because very few human beings get to experience what you experienced on that day. So for me, that day was, it was weird because I had played so poorly in the first round. The, the focus was to make the cut. So you have a chance to move up the leaderboard on a weekend. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got off to a good start. I birdied 11 and 12, you know, 11 there is probably not a hole you expect to make birdie on par five, 12 is one you would expect to. And so I'm two under through three holes and I'm like, all right, we got some momentum. I'm back probably on or just inside the cut line at that point. And it's like, all right, let's, let's put a round together now, you know, and all of a sudden ball starts going in from 15 feet. And when, you, when I did miss a fairway, you know, I'd miss a, I'd miss in the right rough to a back left pin. And so I'd have the perfect angle to the hole. Or I'm missing the left rough to a back right pin and have the perfect angle to the hole. And I was like, man, this is like all the stars are aligning right now. <laughs> and so then it became, I'd made five in a row. I'd made six in a row, you know, and then I've made seven in a row was like a tap in and, and then a par five, sorry, six in a row was a tap in number 17 was for seven in a row. And it's a par five. I'm like, man, you got to get to eight in a row here. Like, or you got to get seven in a row here. <laughs> Is that what That's, you were telling yourself? Yeah. Like you can't not, you can't end the streak on a par, a reachable par five, yeah, right? You can't like, make par, who makes power in a par yeah. five? Come on. <laughs> and, uh, and so you make birdie there. And then the ninth pole was kind of a goofy pin, bad number. I'm like, all right, like let's, we're kind of back in this golf tournament now. Let's start plotting our way through this and let's not make a silly mistake here trying to force the issue. And I hit it in the middle of the green, and all of a sudden I make a 30 footer. I'm you like, hooped Whoa, it. yeah, that's eight in a row. <laughs> and, uh, and then make another one on, on number 10 or my 10th hole, number one, and for nine in a row. And I had no idea what the records were or anything like that. I just knew that, man, now I really got a chance to shoot 59. And that's kind of when it sunk in. And, uh, you know, that there's just a series of basically good par fours there on the, on the front nine at the Greenbrier. And, you know, I just said, let's give ourselves as many opportunities as you can. And, and, you know, you increase your odds by doing that, right? Mm -hmm. More greens I hit, the more chances are I'm going to make a birdie or, or two, which is what I needed to do. And, and then once I got, you know, I made a putt on my 16th hole to get to 11 under par, which would equal, if you were to post that equal 59, it was like, I walked over to my caddy and I said, well, we might as well not stop. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I, I unfortunately made two pars in the last few holes, but you know, it's such a special moment for me to do that and to do it you know, in this, my second round back after 10 months off, the negative to that is probably it created a little bit of ignorance that I'd probably, that I didn't need to practice to compete on that level. Mm. And cause I wasn't, I wasn't able to get the reps that I now know I need to have my game be sharp. I was able to play consecutive days with a warm up, and my body would hold up, but there wasn't much practice outside of that. So when you get evidence like that, like you shoot 59, you're like, oh yeah, like this is good. I can keep doing this. And it's yeah, just, I'm back on the bike. Over, yeah. Over a long period of time, you're going to get exposed. And right. that's, that's kind of what I feel like has happened for, you know, this, let's call it the, my second career is that I kind of came back a little bit too early in that sense that I wasn't able to sharpen my tools. Mm -hmm. And now that I finally am able to do that, I think, you know, success, the success will come the way I, that I want it to. Yeah. But I needed to accept that maybe I was climbing an uphill battle that 
something I wasn't prepared for right away. I think the mountain just continues to grow as we continue to climb, right? And exactly. you said second career and going back to my comment that I got from your coach, Mark Blackburn, Chappie 2.0, I guess Mark says that you've always been gritty, but now you've embraced this growth mindset. Number one, do you agree? And number two, what does this look like to the outside observer? How would, how would we know that you're gritty and demonstrating a growth mindset? So I guess I, I, uh, I've always ran a little hot at times and maybe didn't use that heat in the best manner, maybe looked instead of looking internally, I looked externally to apply that heat or to Hmm. point, you know, maybe use blame. And, you know, when you're on your back for, you know, six, eight weeks at a time, because you can't play golf and you, you, you really start to assess and realize what you do means to you. And, you know, this is my career. This is, if no one else's, I get to write my own story. And I think at times I, I could tend to lose sight of that. And so that this is, the story that I'm writing and, and, and I'm really embracing that. And so one of the things that I've tried to improve is my self-talk. And so I try not to say anything to myself that I will, wouldn't say to one of my kids. Mm, love it. And so that, that's been a big piece for me coming back. That being said, we can always do a better job. And, and I'd say right now I'm, I'm in, not in a spot that I'd like to be in with my game, you know, having, not having success. I'd, I'd, I want to, and I, I'm having to, kind of reassess and look back at the things I've learned and start over mm-hmm. and then try to reapply some of those things. And so like one of the things I'm doing now is uh, my wife got me into this is we do five things we're grateful for every day. We write in a journal. Gratitude. Love it. And so, th- and that's really helped because, you know, you can tell where you really are. Like, you know, some days it might be, I'm grateful that I didn't shit myself today. And that's like, <laughs> Oh, are you in a good place? If that's what you're grateful for <laughs> or so, some days it's, I'm grateful, you know, like last night, one of my things was, I was grateful that I get to share my experiences with my kids. I try to be as open with them as I can. And, you know, my four-year-old doesn't know what, you know, frustration necessarily means or what it, what it looks like, but he knows daddy's saying it to him. And so he's listening. Yep. It's like, man, that's pretty cool. Beautiful. Beautiful lessons. You've been challenged. You've shown grit and determination. You've got this renewed attitude towards this growth mindset and you'll continue to climb as you climb one looks to anchor to something right and uh, where i'm going here is confidence and again referencing your coach mark he says you've got big bravado and there's a quote that i use sometimes first you get courage and then you get confidence first question is do you agree with that that courage comes before confidence and if not where do you find or how do you build confidence in what you're doing so I think for me, we're going to go back to the evidence word. Mm. And so whether that's in evidence in a round of golf you played with your buddies, evidence in a combine you did, evidence in a putting drill you did, mm-hmm. you know, you're not just going to get better by wanting to get better. You know, you got to put in the work and you get, there has to be, in my opinion, there has to be the evidence. And so for me, I think my confidence comes first, then I get the courage to apply that confidence in the competitive atmosphere. Understand. So you know, for me, it's, it's really owning what I'm working on, owning and improving these skill sets, sharpening my tools. And then, all right, let's, I, I think I, I think I've owned it. All right, let's go see how, how the application works sure. or the application didn't work. Was it because I didn't own it or was I not mentally prepared to apply, to apply these, the skill set in the situation? 
and then you reassess and you and you try again. You go back at it. I think that in itself takes courage mm-hmm. to keep coming back. You know, you like we talked about earlier, we golf's a game where you just keep getting hit, you keep getting hit, and all of a sudden you realize, man, I can really take some punches. Let me deliver one and see what happens. Right. And so that that takes courage to keep coming back and then throw a punch yourself. Yeah. Your chosen career is golf, but you're more than just a golfer. Chappy the man off the course, lovely wife, two kids. How do you spend your time at home? With them. You know, I let my life is, uh, or their lives are dictated by what I'm doing and they go where I go. And mm-hmm. I'm fortunate that they, we get to do that. So when we're home, I try to make it all about them. So, you know, today we already had dance class tonight. We got baseball practice <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I tried to uh, encourage them and expose them to as much as I can. My son loves to play golf. So, you know, I take advantage of getting my work done and then letting him come out and hit some, hit some shots. And we do that as a family. That's something I enjoy. And, and, I wouldn't have it any other way. My wife and I are fortunate to have a platform and be able to, to change lives. And so that's been a big part of uh, us as well. We have a foundation with the Children's Hospital Central California, which is in Fresno, where I grew up. And we started it maybe 10 years ago now. And, uh, you know, it's become a lot harder after having kids to go see, see young children struggle with their battle with cancer. But it probably means more to us now that we have kids. So we, we're less hands-on, but we're working harder and harder each day to, to raise money and awareness for the, the foundation. You've been more than generous with your time. We could continue to talk for at least as far as I'm concerned. I could li- continue to ask you questions and just wait with bated breath for your um, rich answers. So sharing such a risk conversation, thank you immensely. Let's close with one final question. And that question is, what advice would you give to the 13-year-old version of yourself? Wow, that is a great question. I think I would tell myself to enjoy it more. Enjoy the adversity, enjoy the good times, and really remind yourself how lucky you are to play a sport, to have the opportunity to compete at the highest level, because nothing's given. Brilliant. Couldn't close it on a better note right there. Thank you for everything you provide us in this conversation. And here's to the next 365 days of better. And I look forward to next time I see you uh, out on uh, PGA Tour driving range in the golf course. Thanks, Kim. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.